Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. As you can hear, I am just crook as a dog, so we are going to try to bang this one out very, very quickly indeed. Oh, my goodness, because I tell you what, the old, uh, the old throat zone is going to run out of juice, I would, I would say, before, before very much longer. So let's get to it here. We're going to be having a chat about a bloke I'm sure you've heard of before. This bloke's name is Tycho Brahe, the famous, uh, famous Danish astronomer. Alert listener Jeremy Orlin suggested Brahe's a topic, and uh, obviously here at Half-Assed History, we all love a bit of, history, of, of science history. Uh, so it's a bloody good pick, I would say. Uh, Bray did a stack of groundbreak, groundbreaking work in astronomy, obviously. That was uh, what, what, the main thing he was doing. He did a bit of other stuff as well, alchemy and whatever else, but uh, main, mainly astronomy. Uh, he actually redefined, more or less redefined astronomy, the study of the stars and whatever else, uh, pretty much single-handedly, uh, without ever even... He didn't even have access to telescopes while he was doing this. He was, he was, he was the very last of the naked-eye astronomers. And uh, he did he, he did a bunch of incredible work. It was he was obsessed with uh, precise empirical measurements and uh, observations, and uh, he accomplished all sorts of incredible things with you know what we would can today consider to be to be pretty rudimentary resources. And uh, amongst these achievements were things like redrawing the composition of the solar system, uh, which he kind of stuffed up a bit, to be honest. But you know we'll get we'll get across that. Uh, figuring out that supernovae weren't comets, and for that matter as well, that comets weren't comets, not what people thought comets were anyway. A lot, lot of different stuff, but again, mainly uh, what he was known for was, was bringing a, a great deal of scientific rigour to a discipline that at that stage in history, I mean, astronomy and astrology obviously today, very separate. One is real science and the other is the rubbish you read in the back of a newspaper. But back then, there was not a lot of... There were very blurred lines between the two, and, and this was a, a discipline, scientific discipline that needed a bit of an upheaval in that regard. And, and Brahe, while still, you know, he believed in all the astronomy, astrology nonsense, uh, he still... He did bring, a, you know, a fair bit of, as I say, scientific rigor to the discipline. So... He built a research uh, research institute, built a big observatory inside a castle, actually, and he navigated some tangled political webs or did all sorts of other stuff there like that. But that's all boring science and whatever else. We'll also get across the good stuff. Don't even worry about that. Like uh, his dueling, his nasal prosth- uh, prosthetic, his pet elk, his court jester that he kept under his table, and, of course, him dying. I don't know if you knew. Oh, sorry, spoiler spoiler alert. He dies in the end. Um, <laughs> he died because he wouldn't go and have a wee. So we'll, we'll, we'll get across all of that today. All sorts of terrific nonsense to get across today. So let's get to it and, uh, and have a chat about Tycho Brahe and what he was all about before my voice gives up entirely. So we're going all the way back to 1546 here, 1546 to Scania or Skorne, uh, which is in what was then Denmark, but today uh, it's part of Sweden. It's the bit of modern day Sweden that uh, I suppose could be, uh, how do you describe this? Uh, no, you know, well, look, I'll give it to you straight. If uh, if Finland is the is the nutsack, then Sweden, you know, is the shaft and, and, and Scania is the, uh, it's the urethra. Seriously, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever examined a map of Northern Europe, but to do yourself a favour and have a look at Sweden and Finland on a map because it is just absolutely, it's just a dick and balls. What's even better about this is that Norway, of course, Norway isn't part of the EU, and so on pre two thousand and seven euro coins before they redesigned them, there's just a little dick and ball struck onto official currency because there's Sweden and Norway, uh, Sweden and, and Finland, I should say, and not Norway, which just it just looks like a dick and balls. Anyway, the point here, the point here is. This is a part of the world that belonged to Denmark in the 16th century, so Brahe, he was born a Dane, and today we consider him to be Danish, even though, as I say, he was born in uh, in what is today Sweden. He was also born 
into a very wealthy and very powerful noble Danish family that was closely connected to the Danish royal family as well. So he's right up there. However, from the from a very early age, from the age of two, he was raised by his uncle. And uh, some of the reading that I did indicated this was because, uh, well, it was it was less of an adoption and more of a sort of a kidnapping, more more or less. Uh, Brahe's uncle, Jürgen Turgesson Brahe was filthy rich, and while I'm not 100% sure that this is true, apparently he actually kidnapped young Tycho after Tycho's parents promised Jürgen their firstborn and then changed their mind after Tycho was born. So whatever the reason whatever the reason was, Brahe went off and lived with his uncle from the age of two onwards, and he was raised by Jürgen as if he was his own son. And apparently this wasn't such a bad deal for, for young Brahe as well. Brahe's parents accepted the situation because of how rich Jürgen was, as they knew that Brahe would want for nothing. And that's exactly how it panned out. His uncle spared no expense in raising Brahe, spending lavish in his, on his education. He got a he got an, a Latin education. Despite being a Protestant, he got a Latin education from the age of six onwards uh, and then went to the University of Copenhagen by the age of 12, which is not a bad effort, where he began to study law at the request of his uncle. His, his uncle wanted to become a, a lawyer or a politician, get into the civic service, and so he studied law. However, while he was at university, Brahe became very interested in astronomy, and so he spent more and more time learning about that instead. Now, at the time, uh, the, prevailing, the prevailing astronomical theory, especially in this part of the world, was that the solar system was geocentric. You've probably heard of this before. People used to believe that the Earth was in the middle and that everything else rotated out around it. They, everything else orbited, the sun basically orbited the Earth. And obviously this isn't true. Uh, um, this is, the, is known as the uh, Ptolemaic system or the, uh, the Aristotelian system. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's, an, it's an idea that people had all the way back in antiquity and today obviously we know that it's not true but back then it was the prevailing sort of uh, theory it was, it was what most people thought and beyond that also a very important thing here that had to do with uh, Aristotelian uh, physics or, or the, 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 the natural science that Aristotle put forth was that everything beyond the moon was immutable you couldn't move or change anything beyond the moon that meant all the planets right and it also meant the stars there's this idea called celestial immutability that meant that basically the the earth is is hanging in space surrounded by this orb of stars that are almost sort of stitched onto a blanket basically that had been uh, that that is wrapped around the earth as like like a the inside of a beach ball almost almost that's an important concept to uh, to think about because it comes into the story of bray very very in, in in a huge way anyway now you're asking well, hang on a second. Geocentrism at this point has already been disproven. You know, Nic- uh, Nicolaus Ker- Copernicus has already been around. He's already, you know, published in 1543. He'd already published his, uh, his his revolutionary work on the revolutions of the celestial spheres, which which completely discru- disproved geocentrism. Absolutely, you're right. Of course, Copernicus had correctly identified that the solar system was heliocentric, and he'd done that several years before, uh, uh, you know, before Brahe's there at this university. However. As Bray was undertaking his studies, this idea was only starting to catch on. It's not as if he published it and, then he, and everyone immediately goes, oh, yeah, of course. How do we how do we ever bloody miss that? No, it took a long time for it to catch on, especially with the opposition that, that the church uh, put towards the uh, the idea of, uh, of heliocentrism. So uh, at this stage, no, people still very much believe that the, uh, that the, the sun goes around the earth and not the other way around. Anyway, a very important date in this young bloke's life, in his, in his studies, was the solar eclipse that took place on the 21st of August in 1560. Uh, and it was important for two reasons. Firstly, Brahe, he couldn't believe that such a thing had been predicted by astronomers at the time. Very impressive. He just he thought, bloody hell, how these blokes figure this out? But secondly, he couldn't believe they got it wrong. They were a day off, right? So he's looked at this sort of system, looked at these, uh, looked at these scientific systems that are used to, that go into predicting things like eclipses, and he goes, hang on. If this is what we're capable of, why can't we do it properly? Like, why, what, what, what's wrong with these numbers that we can get to within a day, but then we get it wrong? This had a huge influence on this young bloke, and he was determined to actually try to, you know, clean up the mess a little bit here. 
And so he threw himself further and further into the study of astronomy. But this uh, this obviously met the disagree- with, was met with disagreement from his uncle. His uncle stepped in and tried to get him back into studying law and civics and stuff like that. And as a result, Jürgen sent him off. He sent young Brahe off to go on a study tour of Europe with a historian Anders Sorensen Vedel. Uh, but this backfired on Jürgen quite severely, I have to say, because Brahe was able to persuade Vettel, this other bloke here, to let him continue studying astronomy while cutting about in Europe. And this means that these two blokes end up based in Leipzig, where they matriculate, but it's at this point that Brahe is rigorously observing the night sky every single night without a telescope, making observations, writing everything down in his journal, and and, and putting together a new conception of the position of the movements of, of, of all the heavenly bodies, the stars, the planets, whatever else, that was all done without a telescope. All of these observations were made with the naked eye. The telescope wouldn't be invented for about, geez, another, what, 30, 40 years in 1608. And uh, with these observations, he began to realise the flaws in the geocentric model of the solar system and, 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 and more or less in a lot of, you know, the sort of the, the modus operandi of astronomers at the time. Anyway, in 1565, he returned to Denmark armed with all this new knowledge and all of a sudden he didn't have to worry about, you know, his uncle trying to derail his uh, astronomical studies there. All of a sudden it, it wasn't a problem anymore because Jürgen actually died in mid-1565. The story goes that he'd been on the source with the Danish king, Frederick II, when the king fell into a canal. Now, Jürgen dove in to save him and was rewarded with pneumonia, which then killed him. Oops. However, this was actually pretty good for Tycho Brahe for a couple of reasons. First of all, obviously, he didn't have his uncle in the way of of his studies as as an astronomer. He no longer had to be involved in law or politics or anything else like that. But secondly, it, I tell you what, it got the king on side. All of a sudden, I mean, not all of a sudden, actually, that's not a fair way to put it. King Frederick II was was closely aligned with the uh, with the Brahe family, as I mentioned before. But having someone save your life is, you know, it's something you tend to remember. And so uh, young Brahe was was the beneficiary of, of, of the king's uh, good graces for, for quite some time after, well, for a, good, a, a you know, very, very long time indeed after this whole incident. So... Now that he's got no obstacle from preventing him from being an astronomer, now he's in the king's good graces. Uh, he he start you know his career begins to really take off. In 1566, he spends some time at the University of Rostock, which he, you know in addition to the astronomy, he also studies some other stuff, medicinal botany, a bit of alchemy as well. But it was here. I want the reason I sort of want to take a quick diversion here and talk about what happened at Rostock because it's here that he had one of his more ridiculous adventures after getting into a, uh, an argument with another Danish nobleman. Actually, I think it was a third cousin of his or something like that. Now, they're both pissed out of their heads at a party. Uh, Brahe, he loved a drink, and uh, he got into a fight with this bloke, got into an argument with this bloke over who was the better mathematician. Now, these days, obviously, you know, if you've got two total nerds arguing about who's the better at maths or doing whatever else like that, they'd probably settle it these days with, you know, a 1v1 on Rust or something like that. But back in the day, these two instead... They decide to fight a duel, as you do. So they agree on a time and a place. They get up the old swords and they have at it. And uh, unfortunately for Brahe, he ends up getting half his nose chopped off. Now, despite being looked after by the medical faculty at the university, Brahe schnozzes. He's total write-off. It's, it's, you know, it's, he looks like bloody Tyrion in, in the books, not on the TV show. And he ends up having to wear a prosthetic, uh, a prosthetic nose for the rest of his life. He used to have to, to glue this fake nose onto his face, and he had to keep a little pot of glue with him at, at all times in, in case it fell off, or I don't know, he, he sneezed particularly violently or something else like that. But it gets even better. It gets even better, a little pot of nose glue. Brahe was going about with his brand new shiny prosthetic nose. He's telling everyone who will listen that it was made of gold and silver. Imagine that. You know, never mind a neutral skin tone or anything else like that designed to blend in with the rest of the face. 
Bray's cutting about with a golden schnoz, shining in the sunlight, setting off airport metal detectors, all, all the rest of it there like that, except it wasn't gold at all. Brahi's corpse, again, sorry, spoilers, he dies, uh, it's been exhumed a couple of times over the years, and in 2012 it was determined that his fake nose had actually been made of brass, not of gold. He may have had a gold one that he wore on special occasions. You know, yeah, fancy dude tonight. Might put the good nose on, I reckon. Um, but for the most part, don't believe the stories you hear about Tycho Brahe and his golden nose. It was actually made of brass. That was well, that was what he wore. Anyway, by 1567, Brahe is one of the leading minds in the field of astronomy. You know, a lot of people know his name. And as we head into the 1570s, he's still making this meticulous observation. Uh, he's devoting he's devoting himself wholeheartedly to his studies. Every night he's at there making little observations, again, all with the naked eye, keeping a journal and a log of all the planetary movements, the stars, all the rest of it there like that. Now, in 1571, King Frederick II, a long-time mate of the Brahe family, as we've already discussed, he agreed to let Brahe build an observatory on the island of Venn, which is north of Copenhagen. Now, this is important because it because what Brahe, what Brahe wanted to do at this point was roam around Europe, right? He wanted to roam around, get different, uh, you know, consult with different astronomers, get different observations, get go to different observatories, do whatever else they're like that. So this was sort of the bribe from the king. It's like, right, I'll give you an island. You can do whatever you want. You can build an observatory there, but just don't leave Denmark. So while it was being set up, he sets himself up with another observatory and, and starts to do some very, very important work, right? But in doing so, I'll tell you what, he pissed off a fair few people. He pissed off a fair few of the other Danish nobles in that very same year in 1571, not only because obviously he's in the king's good graces, but secondly, he shacked up with a commoner. He shacked up, you know, he's, he's of noble birth, but he shacked up with his commoner. Her name was Kirsten Hansen. Uh, they had a bunch of kids, uh, all of whom, none of whom, sorry, I should say, none of whom had access to Brahe's uh, titles or, 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 or money or anything else like that. And, and his wife and their kids were treated like dirt by the rest of the Danish aristocracy there because they were, because the marriage was morganatic, right? It was not recognized by the church. All the kids, none of them were nobles. And so, uh, you know, he got on the wrong side of a lot of people there by, by having, a, you know, a, a marriage that wasn't uh, sort of ordained or approved of by the church. Anyway. While uh, all the business in Fen, you know, is getting set up, whatever else they're like that, he's he's at a different observatory in Denmark, and it's in 1572, the next year after his marriage, after this business with Frederick II, uh, uh, there's an event of enormous importance for for Tycho Brahe, because in 1572, there was a supernova in the Cassiopeia constellation, which created a very new and a very bright star. Now, this was this was important, because the previous understanding of the solar system and that the stars held, as I mentioned, that everything that passed the, was past the moon was unchangeable. Celestial immutability is what I call it. You remember that? It was, uh, it was uh, you know, this, this is what it was known as by follow, followers of the uh, Aristotelian uh, school of thought. Now, Brahe was able to demonstrate that this new light in the sky, it could not have been sublunar. It could not have been as atmospheric as it didn't show an observable parallax. That is, its position didn't move in the sky as it would have if it were closer than the moon. You can imagine this. I mean, you, if you think about the, the, the our whole idea of 3D vision is based on the, th the fact that things that are closer to you move in a different way that are things that are than things that are further away from you. And Brahe was able to demonstrate that this new star that was in the sky was literally that, a new star. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a comet. Before Brahe, people assumed that supernovas were comets that were blazing between the moon and earth. Um, again, because it was thought that the stars were fixed. And Brahe 
proved that this wasn't so. He published a book about it the very next year, overturning centuries of astronomical orthodoxy in disproving celestial immutability. Now, this book, De Nova Stella, it cemented his reputation as one of the preeminent astronomical scientists, and his fame now reached far and wide throughout Europe. Now, this meant that Frederick II was even more, uh, even more, uh, you know, intent upon keeping Tycho Brahe in Denmark and keeping him happy. And this meant that from 1576 onwards, he was able to work at this new observatory on the island of Haven, which was named Uraniborg. Now, obviously, for the steady march of scientific understanding, this was a very good thing. But I will say this, it wasn't such a good thing for the people that already lived there. Because King Frederick II, he gave Brahe feudal powers over the previously freeholding farmers on the island. And unfortunately, this showcased a rather unpleasant side of Brahe's personality, I have to say. Because as the Lord of Venn, he forced these peasants to build the castle that housed his observatory. He ordered them to produce twice as much food as they'd done before. And raise taxes just for good measure there. The peasants, they took Brahe to court over all this. They complained that their new lord was ruling them unfairly. But shock horror, the court sided with the wealthy noble landowner rather than, you know, the filthy unwashed peasants. And generally, he just treated these peasants on Venn like dirt. He forbade them to leave the island and forced them to do his bidding. And it's this all sounds pretty horrible, and it is. But it's thought that this wasn't particularly unusual. Brahe wasn't more, you know, much more tyrannical or iron-fisted than other similar lords in similar positions at the time. Not, not that this makes it any better, of course. It just provides you with some historical context as to why this bloke behaved as he did. And it tends to be people like Brahe, people whose names, you know, echo throughout history. They tend to be under a little bit more scrutiny. I'm not trying to excuse the way that you treated the people under it. I'm just trying to give you the, the context. And, and, you know, when you hear that he was like this, understand that, you know, this was very much the norm uh, amongst people in his position at the time, which, again, doesn't excuse it. Anyway. Despite this rather nasty aspect of Brahe's uh, uh, history, Uraniborg, which is named after Urania, the muse of uh, astronomy, was one of the most advanced astronomical and research facilities on the face of the planet. It featured observation uh, observatories, I should say, in high towers, underground laboratories designed to protect chemical research from the outside elements, and it even had a printing press, one of the very first in Scandinavia. This was a big deal. In order to feed the press, Brahe ordered the construction of a paper mill on the island and designed himself a series of canals that were used to to use water to, to power the mill. And the fact that Brahe could produce and watermark his own paper was instrumental in Uraniborg's success. Brahe was able to publish his own manuscripts, free from delays or interference, and I tell you what, he got a lot of science done. He brought in a huge number of students, assistants, engineers, artisans, and he built an incredible, an incredible collection of minds who worked together to uh, unlock the secrets of the solar systems and, and, and the, you know, the stellar systems beyond them as well. For example, Brahe's observations allowed him to catalogue and predict the positions of, and movements of all five of the planets. All five of them, would you believe? Uranus wouldn't be discovered until uh, 1781. Neptune remained unknown until 1846. There are only five. Earth Earth didn't count uh, as a planet, by the way, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come to the reasons why in a second here. He also recorded the positions of hundreds of stars which, with, with the most ridiculous level of accuracy, much greater accuracy than had ever, ever been seen before. This involved the use of incredibly brilliant mathematics that I can't hope to understand or explain, but just, you know, just I guess it's just enough for me to tell you that it was, like, really smart. Like, really, really smart it was. Anyway, um, he was also behind the development of some of the most advanced pieces of astronomical equipment the world had ever seen up until that point. He pissed money into the creation of more and more precise instruments to measure the movements of the, st of the, of the stars and the planets. But one of the more important discoveries that he made was in 1577 and 1578 when a huge comet was visible in the sky. 
Now, Brahe and the others at Uraniburg meticulously observe this comet, and they provide uh, another hugely unorthodox uh, concept, just as with the supernova in 1571, because most people thought at the time that a comet was a sublunar or an atmospheric uh, phenomenon. The idea of celestial, celestial immutability meant that everything beyond the moon was fixed, it was, unch- it was unchanging, and so a comet blazing across the sky couldn't possibly be any further than the moon. People really believed that when they saw comets in the sky, they were, cu- they were happening between the moon and the Earth. Now, Brahe's research proved that the comet was in fact further away than the moon so that it could, and it couldn't have originated within the earthly sphere, as he put it. It was once again proof that celestial immutability was false, and the the entire understanding that, that we as a species had at the time of, of what a comet was was completely false. Remember, he did all of this without the use of telescopes. He used sextants and quadrants and whatever else, but much of the observations were just made with the naked eye. Incredible. An incredible amount of very forward-thinking science was done with, as I mentioned before, what we would call today very rudimentary resources. Unfortunately, he didn't get everything right, and he made a couple of absolute howlers while doing his, uh, his research and, and, and presenting his findings. And the biggest one was his refusal to fully adopt Copernican heliocentrism. In other words, the idea that the sun was in the center of the solar system. He couldn't, he couldn't reconcile, uh, he, he couldn't reconcile this, this concept uh, this, with, with his observations or with his beliefs more than anything else there like that. Because, look, Brahe was a big fan of Copernicus and, and all of his work, and he was, he, was the actual, he was the first person to start teaching it in Denmark, but he didn't get it quite right. He couldn't reconcile uh, Copernicus's theories with his own observations, with his own beliefs, and he stuffed it right up in attempting to find a compromise between the two. Now, you've heard of the, uh, the, the Ptolemaic system of, of geocentrism, You've heard of the Copernican system of heliocentrism, but I bet you have not heard of the Tychonian system of geoheliocentrism. Brahe came up with this truly ridiculous idea that while all the other five planets orbited the sun, the sun itself orbited Earth. He was heavily influenced by the Christian church, which held that the Earth was, you know, the center of the solar system. They've never let the truth get in the way of a good bit of solipsism. But he also weirdly believed that the Earth was too heavy to orbit anything else and so must be fixed as a result. So a huge swing and a miss from old mate Brahe there, as we all know today. But it was one of, the, it was one of very few mistakes he made when set against his other brilliant findings and, and discoveries there. His observations were so rigorous, they were so accurate, that they weren't really improved upon for another century and a half. Which is incredible when you remember that he didn't even have a telescope. So despite the you know real howler with his uh, his geoheliocentrism there, he he did get a lot of other stuff right. It is still very very amusing to consider. You know, I mean today we understand like the Earth goes around the Sun and the Moon goes around the Earth, but he he sort of thought that you know the <laughs> the Sun went around the Earth and then all of the planets went around the Sun like moons of the you know, the sun. So it's, it's pretty, I don't know, it's pretty funny to think about today in the 21st century, but back in the day, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't reconcile his, his beliefs with, uh, with, with the Copernican model. So he tried to come up with this sort of weird hybrid of the two, which actually caught on in, in a lot of circles. A lot of people who were trying to be forward thinking when it came to science, but also traditional when it came to religion, they tried to use this as a, you know, as a compromise, but of course, obviously 100% false. And today we, we understand our position in the solar system. It's, it's just very funny to think about. I think that, you know, the, the, he 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 kind of stuffed up a, an otherwise very a very illustrious scientific career with uh, with that sort of stuff. It wasn't the only thing he stuffed up, actually, of course, with when it came to that. But you know, this I'm not going to be so, too hard on him for for this other the other the other part of the uh, the sort of the scientific compromises he made because, as I mentioned before, at the time 
Astrology and astronomy, there basically weren't, there wasn't much of a difference between the two. There was still a very strong and fervent belief that the planets and and, and the stars influenced uh, what behavior, the future, all that sort of stuff on Earth, which obviously is complete nonsense. We all, well, no, we don't all understand that today because it's still wasting valuable newspaper inches as people, you know, like to read self-affirming absolute hogwash in the uh, in the newspapers about, you know, because flaming orbs of plasma that are millions of light years away can somehow influence our, uh, you know, <laughs> our lives here on, on this far-flung speck of dust on the other side of, a, of, a, of the galaxy. Anyway, he, he had to get into this as well. And the one reason, the main reason to get into this is to pay the bills. This is why kings and, 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 and princes and queens and, and, and emperors and empresses, this is why they had astronomers is, is to do divination, is to do, you know, to, is, is, is to see the future, predict the future based on the, the, the alignment, the, the orbits of, of stars and, and planets and all, all the rest of it there like that. And so every year, Old mate Bray would actually have to submit a report to Frederick II uh, outlining what, what was to come, you know, whether the crops were going to fail or whether there were going to be invasions or, or all that sort of stuff based on his research. So, you know, while he's doing a good bit of science, he's also having to sort of uh, fulfill his, uh, you know, his, his patron uh, by by giving him all of this this horoscopic nonsense about what was going to happen in the future in the coming year based on you know the movements of the stars the planets whatever else like that so you know I'm not going to come down him too hard for that the the, the geoheliocentrism is a, a whole lot of nonsense but the other stuff again you know just making ends meet just paying the rent whatever else there like that keeping the king on side good on him and he's having to do that you know because that's what all the astronomers back then had to do anyway we're not going to get into stu- stuck into that because there's plenty of other weird stuff to get stuck into instead we've done all the boring science stuff here's 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 the good bits here's you know we've eaten the Brussels sprouts, it's time for the big bowl of ice cream now, because here's some of the weird stuff about this bloke, and I'll tell you what, there's plenty of it. I mentioned that he had Uraniborg built as a castle, and uh, despite at this stage, you know, we're hurtling towards the all-too-modern age of the 18th, the 18th century, if you'll believe it here, uh, he still had it built as this medieval castle. It really was a proper medieval castle, complete with, you know, a, a dungeon, even a torture chamber, apparently. I wasn't able to find anything that he indicated that he'd ever used it, but, you know, I suppose it's nice... It was nice for him to know that, you know, it was there. It's like when you're house hunting and you, you find a place got a you know, nice balcony, a nice, you know, even maybe a jacuzzi, that sort of thing. Even if you don't use it, it's nice to know that it's there. Um, he funded the castle and his research, not only with his own money as a noble, but also with this ridiculously generous stipend from King Frederick II. I mentioned before that obviously, you know, Frederick was obviously good mates with Brahe, but also his role as the astronomer as the astrologer, I guess, with these, you know, the big book of predictions, the big bumper book of predictions that he'd produce every year, Brahe received a royal allowance that was equal. It was ridiculous, this this allowance. It was absolutely obscene. He received an allowance that was equal to about 1% of the entire revenue of Denmark. That is a truly absurd amount of money. And I, I, I will go further and say this. Not all of it was spent on science. I have to say, not all of it was spent on science because Brahe, I've already mentioned he loved his booze. He loved to party. He would regularly have massive piss-ups at his castle. He'd invite the rich and famous from around the world. He'd, you know, King, King James of Scotland, King James VI of Scotland came and visited him one point, you know, get, get on the source there like that, having a great time. These rich and illustrious visitors from around the world. And as part of these parties, right, just like the proper medieval castle that it was, Brahe had a court jester that would entertain the guests. This bloke, was uh, his name was Yep, and he was a dwarf. And when he wasn't putting on a show at these parties, Brahe had Yep sit under the table near him and he'd feed him out of his hand as well there like that, which is a very, very weird kind of situation to get in. I don't really want to unpack that one too much, but he did have a court jester. And also, rather than something as mundane as, you know, a dog or a cat for a pet, Brahe instead 
had a pet elk, or perhaps it was a moose. We're not 100% sure. Brahe himself called it an elk, but it may, it may have been a moose. We don't, we don't know. In any case, whatever it was, right? This elk or moose or, you know, survey of some description, it lived in the castle. It would accompany Brahe when about, you know, when it been on trips here and there, trotting along next to his carriage. And just like Brahe himself, it took after his master as well because it really enjoyed getting on the sauce. It loved a quiet beer, loved a couple of, uh, of quiet ales there. Apparently, Brahe would entertain his guests by wheeling out this pet elk and getting it roaring drunk. And this poor elk, I'm, I'm sorry to say the poor elk, it, it met with a very unfortunate end, however, because um, this was recorded in some of Brahe's correspondence with the Landgrave Wilhelm of Hesse-Kassel. Uh, Wilhelm wrote to Brahe asking if there was an animal that could run faster than a deer. And in the generous spirit of scientific inquiry, Brahe offered to send Wilhelm his elk so as to run some tests. And Wilhelm agreed. He agreed to exchange the elk. You know, fair's fair. Exchange it for a horse. And uh, an accord was struck until Brahe had to actually call off the deal, unfortunately, as the elk had tragically passed away. And how, I hear you ask? Well, out on a bender one time in Landskrona, the elk had gotten pissed as a newt and had died after falling down a set of stairs. And this, I guess, reminds of a very important, you know, a very important thing we should all keep in mind. Always drink responsibly, my friends. Remember Brahe's elk and always drink responsibly. Anyway, the last thing when it comes to Brahe, the last weird thing that when it comes to Brahe was also that the last thing that he ever did, uh, it kills him. It killed him again. <laughs> Spoiler, sorry. Uh, in 1601. In 1588, King Frederick II died, and his 11-year-old son, Christian the uh, Christian IV, inherited the Danish throne. Now, during this regency, before the 11-year-old came, uh, before the, you know, the young king came of age, it ended in 1596, uh, Brahe slowly but surely fell out of favour with the, uh, the young new king here. Christian IV, as it turned out, was much more interested in war rather than science, and Brahe realised that Uraniborg was going to be in trouble as the royal stipends began to, uh, began to disappear. Now, smelling blood... Brahe's political opponents in the Danish court further turned the king against Brahe, going as far as calling his scientific research heretical. This is in addition to, you know, all the alchemy, all the chemistry, all the, all the arcane instruments and, and notations, all that sort of stuff. Oh, that's the devil. That's the devil's work. You know, it's like a D&D rule book. Um, but no, there's none of that, of course. Remember his, rule, his, uh, his morganatic ma- marriage, his, the, 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 the wedding that, that all these other nobles uh, disapproved of. And a lot of them were able to sort of, uh, you know, turn the, turn the opinion of the king against poor old Brahe there like that. And this, uh, it worked. In 1597, there was a riot outside of Brahe's house in Copenhagen. And Brahe, you know, he's a, he's a smart fella. He read the writing on the wall. He finished his catalogue of the night sky, which detailed the position over a thousand stars. He packed up what equipment he could. And he went into exile, fleeing Denmark forever. And by the time the king's men turned up, Hon Ven turned up at Uraniborg to, uh, to, you know, to see what was going on there. It was too late. Brahe had left. And all, all that was left were these instruments that the, uh, that the king's men assumed were just useless wastes of money. And unfortunately, this, uh, you know, this, this great observatory, you know, forged as it was on the backs of, on the backs of you know, indentured servants that uh, those peasants were, uh, unfortunately, it did come to an end there. Anyway, what happened to Bray at this point? After being run out of Denmark, he's very unhappy, very unhappy bloke he was. He'd lived basically his entire life in Denmark. He loved it, but unfortunately, he was obviously forced to leave there. Very sensible thing. Probably wouldn't have ended too well for him if he hadn't. And he went to Hamburg. He moved to Hamburg until 1599, staying there in exile, until he gained the patronage of the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Rudolf II. And so in order to take full advantage of that, he moved to the capital, 
Prague. Now in Prague, he built another observatory about 50 kilometers away from the city, and he began to work closely with a new assistant. And this bloke's name is pro- was probably one that you'll be familiar to you as well, Johann Kepler. It's probably another name you recognize there. Unfortunately, this partnership, as you know, two of the greatest minds in, in you know in, in astronomical history working together there like that. Unfortunately, this partnership wasn't to last. As Brahe died within a, within a few years of moving to Prague in 1601. Obviously, his life cut tragically short. He was only what 54 or something like that when he died, and a lot of the work that he was doing with Kepler, unfortunately, you know, brought to a an abrupt end with uh, with his untimely demise. There, according to Kepler himself. Brahe went to a great big banquet in Prague in October 1601, and while eating and drinking and having a great time there, as was his wont, he was absolutely busting for a wee, right? However, it would have been a huge breach of etiquette for him to get up and leave in the middle of the banquet, you know, even to go and have a quick slash here. So he just sat there, and he held it in while this party's going on. Now, I didn't realise that it was possible to hold it in until your bladder literally bursts but apparently that's exactly what happened poor old bra he was was he's being so polite that he bloody killed himself he went home in excruciating pain after the banquet and he died unfortunately within two weeks before he died he wrote his own epitaph which is quite amusing he lived like a sage and died like a fool which is pretty spot on i think you'd have to say nonetheless even with Brahe's death, Kepler continued his work. And, you know, I, I don't want to be too ungrateful for a man that was, was, was you know, instrumental in, in furthering our, our understanding of our place in the universe here. But Kepler was kind of able to, you know, put his foot to the floor when it came to, uh, you know, his future researches here. He was an avowed believer in, in, the, in Copernican uh, heliocentrism, which meant that he was able to sort of continue where Brahe let, had uh, left off while correcting many of the mistakes that Brahe had made. And in doing so... He made another huge breakthrough, ultimately discovering that planets orbit the sun in ellipses and not in circles, which was able to further reconcile heliocentrism with the with the observations that people had had made at the time. And in fact, Kepler's works, which were strongly influenced by Brahe's, were so important that they went on to provide the basis for Isaac Newton's theory of universal gravitation. So for all his idiosyncrasies, for his golden nose and his pet elk and all the rest of it, the diligent, meticulous science that was done by Tycho Brahe ended up being of monumental importance to the steady progress of scientific understanding. More than anything else, Brahe's greatest legacy is redefining the concept of astronomical accuracy and scientific rigour, even if he did think that the sun orbited the Earth. Oops. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. I tell you what, <laughs> thank, thank goodness, because my voice is, uh, is is just about to give up on me. You know, th- thanks for sticking with me on this episode. I, I hope the uh, you know the old frog in the throat hasn't been too jarring, too grating, uh, and uh, hopefully it'll be you know ship shape, spick and span next week, and uh, you know back up to uh, back up to the usual standard. Anyway. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right here, right now. Halfhousehistory.net is the website, of course. You can find links to subscribe on iTunes on Android. Thank you to the people who are leaving on Spotify as well. Uh, thank you to people leaving reviews on uh, on iTunes. I do really very much enjoy going through and reading them. They're all very, well, most of them are very generous. A couple of, couple of stinkers in there, but look, they can't all be winners. No worries. 
Um, if you want to tell your mates about this show, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, we, I, you know, still got to get those numbers up, rookie numbers in this business, uh, and I'd love to, you know, spread the message of, of half House history far and wide. History has a huge PR problem. People think history is very boring, and that I think is because mainly of the way that it is presented. And um, you know, I'd like, I'd like to. I'd like to turn that on its head. And so, you know, you can do your bit by uh, by passing on the good word of half house history and letting people know that, you know, there, there's some good fun. There's some good fun to be had in the in the realm of history. I'd, I'd really appreciate if, you, uh, if you'd spread the word on Twitter or just, you know, in, in the meat space, however you want to do it. And, of course, a special thank you goes to uh, the people supporting me on Patreon. Uh, you can jump on to patreon.com slash half history and I uh, pledge to support the show. Uh, and uh, for all of those who, who are listening to the show who do that, thank you so very much. You, uh, you uh, obviously making me... You know, making making this show possible week in, week out. So thank you for your continued support. And a special thank you, of course, this week to Jeremy Orlin, who suggested the uh, the, the the topic of Taika Brahe. If you want to follow in his exalted footsteps, please send me a message. The best way to do this, of course, is the contact form on the website. I regret to say that now I'm getting too many emails that I'm just not, I'm not able to reply to them all anymore, but I do read every single one. So thank you so much to the people who are uh, sending in uh, your suggestions, feedback, whatever else it is. I, I, I appreciate it so very, very much. Um, and the final thing, I almost forgot, the final thing is the shop, halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com. You can order T-shirts, magnets, uh, you can order uh, notebooks, you can order everything in a big bundle, and it is free shipping, free shipping on everything. So if you want any, you know, Half House History swag, that's the way to get it. Anyway, closing out the show as usual this week with a question posed on Reddit. We've got a, a science question rather than a, rather than a history question here. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, talked a lot about astronomy. Talked to we, you know we didn't talk a lot. We didn't have a lot of telescope chat because of course telescopes weren't invented until sixteen oh eight. Everyone knows that. But we've got a telescope related question here from Reddit user Bill Bixby, aka Hulk, who asks, "Why can my telescope see deep into space, but my telephone can't even call the moon?" <laughs>